Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast World Cup Daily. Day 29 of World Cup 2018 is done. It's an off day for games, but not for Brian Strauss and me. We'll look ahead to the France-Croatia final as part of our podcast coming to you daily from Russia through July 15th. Just a small request, it would be a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I'm also joined by Ishan Tharoor of the Washington Post. Onward! Brian Strauss is back in Moscow from St. Petersburg. Good to have you back in town, even though it feels like you're very far away when I hear your voice because of the connection. I am much further away than I was last time, but certainly not as far as... uh the sound might suggest. I know it sounds like I'm in orbit right now. Um, I also know what happens when Russians send you into orbit. When you come back, um, you're probably dead, and they stuff you and put you in a museum. At least that's what they do to the dogs. Um, so, yeah, I got back, uh, took a train back today from St. Petersburg. Uh, my hotel has no internet and no air conditioning, but it does have a roof and a place to put my suitcase, um, which is full of dirty laundry. So, home stretch, man. <laughs> Rally, baby. Um, I actually felt yep. pre- pretty good about uh, your positivity last night. So, you know, uh, we have basically four more days here. Uh, it's Thursday in Russia. The final is Sunday. The third place game is Saturday. I want to talk a little bit about the final since we uh, were sort of looking backward last night, talking about the semifinals, obviously. France, Croatia. Uh, a rematch of the 1998 World Cup semifinals, um, and actually some similarities uh, between, I would say, uh, both of these teams and their predecessors from 20 years ago. Uh, what reminds you about Croatia? Um, it's a good question. I was going to start with France, and I'll get to Croatia. Um, okay, let's start with France, yes. I, I look at a very multicultural team, uh, in the same conversation that was being had 20 years ago, I went back and reread my SI story from 1998 about that team and how at a time of rising, unfortunately, right-wing politics, uh, this was sort of a rebuke to those right-wing politics. And I think there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, I think uh, you look at uh, a guy like Paul Pogba, He's 25, entering the prime of his career. Zinedine Zidane was 25, entering the prime of his career. Uh, Didier Deschamps is a common figure in both teams. One is uh, a defensive midfielder. One is the manager, but with a similar outlook now as he had then to playing the game fairly conservatively. You have a starting center forward with no goals in the tournament. In this case, it's Olivier Giroud. Uh, Then it was Stefan Givarch, uh, who I, I think... Giroud has had a, a more positive impact on this tournament than Givarch did on that one. Uh, a very uh, good defensive performance from this France team, just as they had in 1998. Uh, and, and we'll see what happens in the final, obviously. Uh, that France team really had a, a remarkable performance in the final, winning 3-0 against Brazil. But it's not like that France team cruised through the knockout rounds, and this France team has not either. Um, in fact, it's been kind of a grind the last two knockout games for them after the 4-3 against Argentina. It's funny because like, I, I do kind of see it as a cruise in a way uh, in the sense that they've never really had, they, they've never really been in a position um, to, to, they've never played from behind. 
Um, they've never really been in that much trouble. Um, you know, I mean, Fr- Fr- Belgium had most of the ball, but they didn't have the better chances against France. Um, they've never really been challenged. And so they were you know, behind I, I, in the I, second I, half to Argentina. Of, I'm saying since Argentina. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, since Argentina. I sorry. Yeah, I mean since Argentina. Uh, right, because that game was crazy. That game was back and forth, bonkers, like a like a like a complete exception. But I thought you meant since Argentina that okay. that. Uh, sorry, that uh, uh, you know they they've sort of boa constrictor each of those games, sort of played them at their pace. Um, did what they wanted to do, scored the goals they needed, never really got out of second gear. Um, and I don't think they've been challenged that much. And, and I wonder, now that since you brought up Argentina, uh, you know, my favorite game of the tournament, I wonder even if when they were down, they really felt like they were in trouble. They really felt like they were panicked. I mean, Argentina was so open and, 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 and so undisciplined and had so many flaws in the structure and the speed of their team that I, I mean, I'll never be able to get inside their head in terms of France's, but I wonder if they kind of even, even, even then felt, you know, we'll get the goal we need. We'll be fine. The worst case scenario, we go into overtime, not a huge deal. I just don't think they've ever really been under that much stress in this tournament. Um, where, and again, the contrast is Croatia has been nothing but stress um, essentially since qualifying, like we were talking about last night. No, that's a good point. I, if you're asking about comparisons between Croatia of 2018 and 98, uh, I think it's just a tremendous generation of players. You know, in in this current tournament, yeah. you've got Modric, Rakitic, Perisic was so good in the semifinal, Mandzukic, uh, and then some really good performances from guys who weren't as well known, like Subasic and Versalco uh, in the semifinal. I thought Versalco was kind of poor at times in this tournament, but he had the cross on Perisic's opener, uh, and I think was kind of a handful actually, um, and. Then you look back at the 98 Croatia team, and uh, it was guys like Davor Šuker, uh, Robert Prošenetski. Um, who else was on that team? Was was Boban on that team? I should know this. Um, no, I don't remember. But you know, you had uh, you had a good generation of players. Um, you know, Alan Boxic was on that team, um, and I guess one question I've got is when you look at Croatia, and this gets back to my story on Iceland ahead of the tournament. Is there a virtue in smallness? This is this I'm told the second smallest country population wise ever to get to a World Cup final after Uruguay in 1930. Um, is there an actual virtue in smallness? There, I, yeah, there can be. I mean, I think that's clear. Uh, I think there, there. You know, I think we've talked about the way either. Small in population or countries that are small in landmass, um, like Belgium, like the Netherlands, etc., um, that they they are able to to get players together, train together, uh, become comfortable, develop chemistry. Um, they're able to sort of, you know, no one falls through the cracks in a, in, a, in a country of that size. Anything's a virtue if you if you are smart and you use it the right way. You know, having three hundred million people can be a virtue too. So we just haven't figured out how to use it as a virtue. So, you know, and, and like we talked about, though, I mean, to, to give to give Croatia, it's hard to give them credit in a way because they seem to sort of have gotten this far in spite of sort of the way things are, are organized in that country. Um, but clearly they've they've now twice in two decades developed a generation uh, of players that can come this far. 
I, I made this note in the in the little preview did we, we did late last night, but that no golden generation has ever won a World Cup. And so what they're really up after here is is a, a new history for for global football for for this tournament for the biggest tournament in the sport that this hasn't been done um, that the teams that win World Cups are from countries that produce consistent talent. The big five in Europe with the big five leagues that are always competitive, that are always contending, and then Uruguay, which was a power back in the day, and then Brazil and Argentina. These are teams that are, that are you know, they may not have a good World Cup or they may not even qualify like Italy did at this time or England and France did in 94, but they're always there. You don't, they don't disappear for 20 years. You know, like I mean, Croatia hasn't gotten out of the group in the World Cup in 20 years, and they didn't qualify once or twice. So we have never seen a team that is, is one of these up-and-down, second-tier countries actually go all the way and win the thing. And so that would be a massive accomplishment, a massive piece of unprecedented history um, that they're 90 minutes away from achieving. Is it interesting to you that these two countries, France and Croatia, do not have you know, one of the top four domestic leagues in Europe? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I always think of, I always think of maybe it's because maybe it's from college basketball days, but I always think of big five, right? I mean, I think of, I think of France as being at a tier uh, separate from Russia and Portugal and Ukraine and the Netherlands and sort of the next, the next, uh, league down in, in the UEFA rankings, and, and maybe I shouldn't because, you know, when was the last time a French team won the Champions League? It happened once, right? And that was 25 years ago. So may, may, maybe we should rank France below. Um, that's a good question. I, I, you know, clearly these players have an affinity and a chemistry for each other that doesn't exist in countries where there's more of a diaspora of players, right? We've talked about that, about how especially the African countries really struggle to develop, even though their players play at top clubs, they really struggle to bring those players back in and develop sort of, you know, tournament winning tournament tested chemistry. It's an interesting thing. If Croatia wins Sunday, dude, if Croatia wins Sunday, there's going to be all kinds of things that have never happened before that we're going to have to consider about a World Cup. I mean, it will it will upend, you know, the the whatever however long it's been, you know, eighty five plus years of of order. If Croatia wins this thing, it would be absolutely historic and an immense achievement. I think we mentioned Argentina earlier. Both of these teams had their most explosive games of the tournament against Argentina. I don't think that's a coincidence. Right, I, I think true. people will look yeah. back on this Argentine team. I think even more as time goes on as a complete and utter shambles, <laughs> considering they had the world's best player. Um, that's an awesome word. But... but um, other than their games against Argentina, France and Croatia have not been explosive in the attack in this tournament. And so I have a hard time thinking that we will see that in the final, especially given that it's a final and teams tend to play a little close to the best in a final. Um, but that said, looking at the game itself, how do you see the matchups playing out? Where do you see a team having an advantage? I have attended three World Cup finals, which is very cool. Um, one of them I spent all of my uh, teenage boy fortunes to get to uh, in 1994, and the other two I've covered. And I've yet to see a goal in normal time. <laughs> I've seen two. Well, I was going to say, I've seen 
uh, I'd seen one goal with my own eyes. Um, as I told a few people, I'll, I'll now reveal, I'll reveal it to the world on the podcast. Um, it, four years ago at the Maracana, which you will make fun of the way I pronounce it, no matter how I pronounce Roberta it. Roberta Martinez? Um, <laughs> Martinez. Uh, <laughs> um, so my assignment was to write about Messi, right? I was writing about Messi in the World Cup final, regardless of what happened. That was my assignment. And so people were talking about on Twitter and the stuff was coming through about how Messi was throwing up on the field. And I was like, wow, that's, that's dramatic. What an image, you know, you know, here he is in the biggest game of his life and he, you know, can't keep his lunch down. So I was looking for photos or some kind of evidence of this actually happening. And all of a sudden I hear the stadium, you know, for, for all the people who think we're sitting there watching the game, having fun, like I hear the gasp and I look up and go to shot is hitting the side netting as I look up. So I never actually saw the goal four years ago, um, which is, you know, part of a, a big reason why I've gone through some things to get back this time. Um, anyway, uh, did you see the quotes from Courtois and some of the other guys after the semifinal where they just ripped France? Courtois yeah. said they played like Panama. <laughs> yeah, just incredible. And, and some, of that, some of that, you know, we, we, see, we see comments like that all the time from the team that lost, the team that, well, we played the better football, blah, you know, that, that's, that's a cliche at this point. But there is some truth to it in the sense that France is infuriating to play against because of their coverage, because of their composure, because they don't make mistakes, because they don't let you breathe, um, and because you, oh, they, they give you... And this goes back to the point about sort of how they've won games here. I think they give you the sense that you think you, you're in it, that you think you have a chance, you know? And, and, and maybe you don't. And maybe, maybe kind of the thing that's maddening about them is that they're so deep and so good that, you know, they, they sort of kill you with false hope. Um, but like I said, I, 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 they, they had the better chances. Belgium may have had more of the ball, but France had the better chances. And... I, I don't know how this game against Croatia is going to go any, any differently. Um, you know, Croatia is going to be, no matter what Luka Modric says, Croatia's got a lot more miles on their, on their players than France does. Um, and France is going to just chill, and they're going to be in no rush. They've got just immense kind of collective uh, sense of who they are and what, and what they shop asks them to do thought their tactics, again, we talked about this other night, their tactics against Belgium were very good. They're going to be smart. They, in Pogba and Conte, they have guys with just incredible range who can, make, who, can, who can do more to limit Modric than anyone else has done in this tournament. And I think they're going to win the game. I think they're going to find, they're going to figure out what they need to do to win and do just that much. Yeah, at this point, I feel like N'Golo Conte, unless we're surprised by something in the final, is France's player of the tournament, and therefore if France wins, the player of the tournament. And he's reflective of how France has performed in the knockout rounds, and he's been terrific. And I don't think there's anything to be to apologize for if Conte has been your best player, because... That guy plays the game in a way that you would want any defensive midfielder to play the game because, and he wins. I mean, there's a reason this guy has won the Premier League with Leicester City and then with Chelsea and is on the verge of winning a World Cup here with France. And I guess I'm just bummed out that he hasn't gotten more positive attention. 
I think some of that just has to do with how spectacular Mbappe's been, right? And just 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 the, some of the jaw dropping stuff that he's done in one game. Um, but at the same time, well, and he, he had some. There was some slickness the other night. Yeah, I mean, he had a great pass. He had night. he had an amazing pass. Yeah. But all I'm saying is, is that um, I guess a but, but, crappy Argentine but I, team. But I, it was good. Right, but I but I also think Conte has got. I mean, I I, I feel like I I feel like Conte has gotten credit and i feel like you've even tweeted a couple times that i think conte is great and people are like yeah he is yeah 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 <laughs> I, I i feel like people recognize recognize what he is and what he brings and yeah. and but, but he's also part of he's also part of a collective i mean Deschamps Deschamps is such a terrible quote and part of what makes him bad is sort of a reflection on the strength of the team right this has happened a couple times where i've been in a press conference with him and someone will say um hey you know Pog was really, you know, there were some concerns about how he'd fit in, whether he would defer, um, you know, where his state of mind was, um, and he's just been really good, and I was wondering if you, you know, what, what you said, you know, just, just asking his thoughts on Pogba, and Deschamps will say, well, it's not proper to talk about one specific player, we should really talk about the collective and the team, and then you pass out, you know, and you just, you, you just, you slice your wrists open. Um, so, that's just that maybe that's just who they are and how they are. And so Conte is symbolic of that, right? He's emblematic of that. He's the guy who's going to make all the little plays that make the difference. Never going to show up in the box score, never going to show up on the top 10 plays list, but every single game, the dude is mistake free and, and, and just snuffs the life out of you. And, and that's what this France team does. And, and people are going to, you know, it was like the Brazil 94 team. Um, I remember when we were in Brazil four years ago, I had a good friend I used to play with um, who uh, lived in D.C. for a few years. I played with him. He moved back to Brazil. And so I hung out with him a few times when we were in Rio. And like he's of the age where he remembers the 94 team very fondly. But he said he would have arguments with people older, than, older and younger who, who, for whom that wasn't their coming-of-age world champion who looked back to that 94 Brazil team negatively because they were – you know, that was the beginning of the Dunga football. And that was, you know, besides Romario and Bebeto, there wasn't a ton happening with that group. Um, and they had to squeak by in some games, not playing Joga Benito. Uh, and, and so, you know, maybe this France team will be remembered by a lot of people the same way, that they never really wowed us or blew the doors off this tournament or played, played the sort of soccer that everyone wants to emulate. But they don't give a shit. You know what my hope is? I hope Conte scores a goal in the final and they win. Because it, at least just right, just to seal it. Yeah, I think that would be great. Kind of the way Petit scored uh, the final one against uh, Brazil back in '98. Someone from that position. Um, but that all makes sense to me. Like, let's imagine that somehow Croatia finds a way to win this thing because I think they they're certainly capable of it. Uh, am, am I right? Am, am I am I right in thinking that this would require not just a a tremendous performance from Modric and, and the back line, because Dayan Lovren is now saying that he should be considered one of the top defenders in the world, which... I, I, and, and we should we should play back uh, you saying that he is not. <laughs> if, if you remember back to our podcast in early January, I think we were coming up with worst players in the world on good club teams, and Lovren was one of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was the. I think he was the inspiration. I think he was the inspiration for the game, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Andre Gomez at Barcelona might have been 
the, I forget which one was the original inspiration, but certainly both qualify. And I will say this about Lovren is I think he's overall had a pretty good tournament and actually had a pretty good last half of the season with Liverpool, but he is not one of the best defenders in the world. I'm sorry. And, and this may, and this may be translation issues. It probably is because a lot of the translation, I mean, again, I can't tell you how, you, you know, you hear, it's, you know, sometimes it, 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 there is a good question. It is an interesting topic. And then the translation just does you no favors and it's unpublishable. That happens a lot. Um, so Lovren's quote saying, I took Liverpool to the Champions League final and now I've taken my country to the World Cup final. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there are some subtleties in the, in, in the Croatian. Maybe their pronouns are a little different. I don't know. I'm hoping. Um, this is the thing. I, I kind of made peace with this. And you may have to as well when Mbappe wins the golden ball, um, that they, oh, they, they get it wrong every time. And, and, and I remember being, when was I really pissed off? I think maybe it was, well, it was 02, certainly, when, when, um, when Oliver Kahn won the golden ball instead of Ronaldo, which was insanely idiotic. And then in 06, Cannavaro won it instead of Pirlo which was just, I mean, not insanely idiotic, but pretty damn idiotic. And then Wesley Snyder should have won it in 2010 and didn't. Um, so they've gotten, I mean, Messi four years ago, it's weird, but he wasn't amazing. But also we're accustomed to a certain standard for him, and I don't think you could make a case that anyone else necessarily deserved it more. So I'm kind of neutral on that one. But they get it wrong a lot. And so if Mbappe, like, like does a sombrero or something during the game, he's going to win it. And then you're going to be pissed. <laughs> I think they take the vote before we know the final result, which always angers me because, um, yeah, you know, when Messi actually got the award last time, he had just lost in the world cup final. And he, it was like the last thing in the world he wanted to do was to get this award that he felt like he didn't deserve. Um, mm-hmm. but here's my question. If Cannavaro could win it and be world player of the year that year as a defender, why not Conte? I, I agree. Yeah, but but in my opinion, Pirlo should have won won it that year. I thought Pirlo was the best player for Italy in that World Cup, and I'm gonna I'll I'll go to my grave either in 20 years or two days believing that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we're gonna it's really hot. It's real. It's really hot. We're gonna it's get really you at least. We're here. gonna get you at least to the World Cup final in three days. All right. Good. Um, but the, but it's like look, it's like any it's like any vote, you know. I mean, elections. As Sudil said to us all before the World Cup vote, elections are unpredictable. Um, so those, these are all cool. These are all cool, uh, uh, you know, narratives and subtext to the final um, and, and stuff. We'll all be talking about leading up to it and, and afterward. But but obviously the real the real rub, the real crux of it is whether with uh, one day's fewer rest and an extra ninety minutes in their legs. Um, Croatia has, and I know this will offend Modric when he never listens to this, but whether Croatia can summon the, 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 the dynamism, the creativity, the piece of play, the pressure, the intensity to break down a team that kind of Argentina was able to break down by accident, um, but that really no one else has been able to dent in this tournament. Um, so, you know, that's going to be the story when we get to Sunday. Well, we'll talk more about the final, obviously, in the next couple of days. True. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, the hotel lobby scene uh, is pretty solid at at, uh, my my Fox Hotel here. Yesterday, 
I shook hands with Trevor Noah, who was here, um, and talked to him for a bit. I uh, went over to, <coughs> excuse me, the FIFA hotel, uh, or one of the FIFA hotels, and uh, saw a friend and got introduced to Avi Glazer, one of the Manchester United owners, sort of reclusive. They never really do anything with the media. Sure. Um but met him. He wasn't staying to the final, which I thought was odd. If you're going to be in Moscow for the semis, why not stay for the final? Um, and who else? Jill Ellis was here. The U.S. women's national team coach had a nice conversation with her. Um, so, so, wait, so, so is, is Trevor Noah? Is Trevor Noah doing a Daily Show bit, or is he just here because he's a fan and he's going to go to the final? I didn't ask him if he was actually working. He said he was going to the game. Um, but cool. uh, yeah, yeah, I like him. Um, but I interviewed uh, I interviewed John Oliver uh, when John Oliver was at the Daily Show. I interviewed him during uh, uh, the, the Bob Bradley's pre World Cup camp in Princeton in 2010. I remember. Um, and he went on this he went on this incredible off the cuff, off the top of his head rant, like just like a screaming, you know, stomping rant about how. Uh, England invented the game as it was meant to be played and all of your uppity, you know, your, 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 your France's and your Spain's and your Brazil's and your Argentina's were doing it wrong, <laughs> that they weren't playing soccer as, as the English had originally designed it. And that was like, not fair. And it was brilliant. It was, it was, it was, he completely just pulled it out of thin air and it was amazing. And I'll never forget it. My so That's a really, really cool way to look at it. My favorite John Oliver rant, or not even a really rant, was his uh, back and forth with Jack Warner, where they, he bought television time on, on Trinidadian TV <laughs> to yeah, come yeah, after yeah. Jack Warner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's on YouTube. It's fantastic. Um, and Jack Warner responded because uh, he thought he was serious. But um, anyway, let's call this a, a day here because I actually did get an interview. We got Ishan Theroar of the Washington Post on the back end of this podcast and uh, you need to find a place where you can cool off since your room apparently in your hotel is not one of those places. Yep. Big thanks to Brian Strauss. Next up is my interview with Ishan Theroar of the Washington Post. Let's bring in our interview guest today, a friend of mine back when he was at Time. He is now at the Washington Post. Ishan Theroar, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Greg. Um, you've been here at the World Cup. Uh, you're not covering things from a pure sports perspective. Uh, so there's some of that, but also uh, you're uh, a political writer. Uh, what's your exact job title at the Washington Post? That's right. I'm a foreign affairs writer at the Washington Post. I uh, write a daily column called Today's Worldview, which is my attempt at writing the big idea of the day in geopolitics or foreign affairs or where Trump meets the world. Uh, and I'm here just for the last week of the World Cup uh, trying to sort of write from the position of someone in Moscow on a pretty turbulent week in geopolitics. You have the NATO summit right now happening. You have, of course, the World Cup happening. And then you have Trump meeting Putin on Monday. So there's a lot, lot going on that makes Moscow an incredibly central place right now. So what has been on your radar screen work-wise uh, while you've been here? Well, I, yeah, I've been kind of sort of jumping back and forth between thinking about the World Cup and then thinking about sort of the, the more pressing geopolitical issues right now in Europe. Uh, but I've been, you know, I've loved watching this 
this the, the ascension of this incredibly young and fascinating French team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot of us we've been talking about the French team from 1998, and this seems to be like the 2.0 version of that, um, with the, with a sort of a increased political narrative as well around it. You know, in 1998, you saw the French team as this team that's emerging, finally tapping into communities from its former colonies. This time around, 20 years later, you have a team that has been built through this pipeline of tapping into France's more marginalized communities and areas and then really building this team of that's almost entirely from uh, uh, almost entirely from migrant backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and it's been a really fascinating uh, cosmopolitanism to watch around the World Cup. And how are people talking about this French team in that sense? Because even before we started recording here, you mentioned that uh, there are some in France who who actually take offense to the idea of talking about this French team in terms of, oh, this is a very African influence. Right. Well, I mean, so the, this has always been a longstanding talking point of far-right parties across Europe. You know, you're seeing it right now this this summer in Germany where you've had the far-right AFD party round on Mesut Ozil and Ilka Gundogan point, you know, scapegoating them for Germany's failure for the World Cup, uh, saying that they were insufficiently patriotic, they're, they're sort of more attuned to Turkish politics and the more loyal to Turkey, and this is why Germany failed. And this was a trope that you saw earlier, you know, in 2010, and whenever the last time France really failed, you had far, far-right politicians from the National Front saying they don't want to sing the national anthem, they're not sufficiently patriotic, they don't believe in this team. So you had this perennial idea that, like, if you are, if you are somebody who's not, quote-unquote, you know, French or a non-white French person, uh, that your your loyalty is somewhat suspect. And that's always been a far-right narrative. Then on the other side, sort of people on the left or people from, say, Africa or countries in the quote-unquote global south, you have this tendency to look at teams like the French team or look at teams like the Belgian team and say, ha-ha, this is another African team. You know, mm-hmm. fine, the, our, the African teams in the tournament didn't do well, but we can identify with France and Belgium as African teams. And so that's been a kind of social media meme that's been going around for some for, for quite some time. I have myself tweeted this once in a while as a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of glib, but it's in my mind, it's a gesture of solidarity and empathy with you know a wider sense of the world. But for some people, including, say, the French ambassador in the United States, he's tweeted out saying, please do not say this is an African team, this is a French team, they're French citizens, they're entirely French. So it's a, it's a kind of loaded issue of identity. Uh, and I think it's been fun to watch, also a bit problematic, because I think this team is French, but you can also be very proudly African. You know, you look at these guys and they are are sort of heroes to people around the world. It doesn't matter what the nationalities are. And so they speak for something that transcends the nation in a way that I think is really special. There's a photograph that a lot of people have seen. It's been out on social media quite a bit of a very young Kylian Mbappe with Thierry Henry. Mm-hmm. And one thing I find interesting about it, it's a, it's a really cute photograph, uh, mm-hmm. but is that young Mbappe is wearing a France jersey in that photograph. And I, it made me think to... If this had been a photo taken in the United States of, uh, I don't know, a player who's like five or six years old right now and a player from his favorite national team, it might be a picture of Chicharito Hernandez and a young American in a Mexico jersey. And I don't know what I'm where I'm actually even going with this mm-hmm. except to ask America seems to be different in a way. It's not like Mbappe was wearing, 
Does he have a is it Cameroonian background? He's half Cameroonian, half okay. Algerian. It's not like he's wearing a Cameroon shirt. Mm-hmm. In that, I, is there anything to take from that, or is that just just something to notice? I mean, I think it's you know, I think some French people would say that France has this kind of universalizing assimilation, uh, a very intense kind of culture of national identity that transcends race and transcends other kinds of forms of identity. Um, but I, I think at the same time, it also varies case by case. I saw in Saint Petersburg. Uh, I met a couple of people who were wearing Algeria shirts, but from France, mm-hmm. and they had Belgian face paint on because they wanted France mm-hmm. to lose. Uh, so I don't think it's 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 as necessarily uh, divided as you know. Oh, the diaspora communities in the United States will only support their nation and not the United States, and the diaspora communities in France will only support France. I think you know it's case by case. Uh, and especially the Algerians in France, where there is a very loaded colonial history, right. you know, th- they've never played against each other. Uh, Algeria and France because it's such a loaded tense thing I mean I believe that's right and uh, you know in the last World Cup when there was a, almost a prospect of a France-Algeria match people were terrified Yeah, that this is going to do something uh, you know very problematic for national unity this could lead to riots this could lead to violence who knows Okay. so it, it's not as even or as clean as that it's a kind of parallel basically. okay interesting um, I want to ask you about Russia and what you think this World Cup has meant or done to people's perspective, maybe on Russia or Russians' perspective on the world coming to Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are two things that are separate and both equally interesting. Uh, on on the issue of what Russians' perspective is, you know, I think they've been really, they've really enjoyed it, uh, especially of, of obviously people living in the host cities where they're seeing this influx of fans. It's there's been this spirit of openness and festivity, and you, you know Russians will, will readily admit to you that you know it's kind of bewildering to see people happily dancing around in the street, uh, drinking. You know, this is a, a country where it's risky sometimes to have large gatherings in the open mm-hmm. um, of that side, and so when you had Russia winning against Spain and you had these huge, unbelievable scenes in the streets, that was a a genuinely cathartic special moment for Russian people. Mm-hmm. Um, even also, you saw similar scenes, not at quite the same scale, uh, when they lost to mm-hmm. Croatia. Um, so I think there's been a, it's been exciting for a lot of the ordinary Russian who lives in these cities where they're seeing these people to feel connected to the rest of the world. There is this narrative that Russia is somewhat isolated, at least politically speaking, and this kind of puts a light puts puts that to a side for now. And and the Russian president can justifiably say, look. We are at the center of the world right now. We're at the center of global attention. Everyone's coming here. Look and, and look, we've also executed a pretty good tournament. You know, there's been none, none of the, or very, very little of the kind of far right racist hooliganism that people were worried about before. Um, LGBT people have so far been relatively well treated here, or at least there hasn't been that many provocative scenes as were feared. And, um, and it's been really efficient and smooth by and large. I think if you're a fan going to these games, you're having a pretty good time. Yeah. And so that's been a good thing. And the Russian government, President Putin, has championed that. He said, you know, he said, we are breaking stereotypes. So so he's gotten the publicity win that he wanted. Now, how lasting and substantive that's going to be, I think is, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, who expect everything to go back to as it was before after the World Cup ends. There are a lot of people who expect this to not have any kind of dividend for ethnic minorities or LGBT people in this country and that uh, the the sort of the Russia that existed before the World Cup is going to snap back into place after the World Cup ends. Mm. Where do you go 
from here to what you are you going to focus on uh trump's visit are you what's your next thing it's not soccer i assume yeah i think i think given all the turbulence in brussels right now with, with trump's been grandstanding there with nato uh i think i have to sort of cast my eye forward to monday when he meets putin this is a it's kind of a fascinating week he's going you know had had england been in the final it would have been this kind of trifecta of trump going from belgium to the land of brexit and uh, where you know the government is falling apart, but yet the English national team is doing well, and then then to Helsinki, where he's going to meet Putin. So it's just this uh, loaded moment. Yeah, I'm going to have to be writing about uh, this visit, and it's going to be interesting. You know, there are no expectations for any genuine uh, kind of reset in relations between Russia and the United States, but uh, Trump is a showman. And I think the Russians here are quite curious about how he's going to handle it. There's a sense in Washington, of course, that this is a huge mismatch, right? Mm-hmm. That that Putin is uh, this incredibly wily, prepared former spy master, and Trump is this impetuous, instinctive guy. The Russians actually don't have that view. They mm-hmm. think Trump is pretty savvy. They think he's he's cultivated a shtick based on his business experience. They think he's going to come into the summit um, with a clear agenda that he's going to execute upon. And, uh, you know, people I've talked to who are closer to the Kremlin are really curious. I think, And mm. they think Putin himself is very curious to see how mm. how uh, Trump handles their meeting. So in soccer terms, you're also a fan. You're an Arsenal fan. Uh, and for better and for worse in recent <laughs> years. Right. And uh, what has your soccer experience been like here? Just if you want to explain to listeners sort of what you've done on the ground, where you've been. Right. So I came here with no real expectation of going to matches. I came here to be more of a political correspondent on the sidelines. And uh, I ended up stumbling upon tickets for two of the games. One, uh, none, none, none of them were in Moscow. It was uh, I went to the quarterfinal between France and Uruguay in Nizhny Novgorod. And then I went to the semifinal between France and Belgium in St. Petersburg. And obviously, this is a truism, but Russia is a very big place especially when you're buying tickets last minute. I uh, didn't get any planes. I didn't get any trains to go to Nizhny Novgorod. So very long car journey there. It was eight hours going one way. Um, and then a uh, long car journey back there. And then I did an 11-hour sleeper train to St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So it's been an adventure. Uh, a lot of soccer fans around with you. It's a whole United Nations of people with you at the same time. It's a fascinating experience. And this is for anybody who's not been to a World Cup. What's so special about it is that there are a few moments in the world where so many people with different languages, different experiences, different backgrounds are with you in the same place and you have a common language. Right. You know, you can have whole conversations based on the proper nouns of footballers and teams and memories of games and goals. And, and it's, it's a really wonderful way to experience the world. And I think it's, it's one of the things that makes the World Cup so magical. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in this sleeper train from St. Petersburg and there's, uh, a Chileno and uh, Bangladeshi and a bunch of drunk Russians and <laughs> everyone's all getting along and it's it's just uh, it's a magical thing. Yeah, it is a really special thing. Where can people find you on social media? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Ishan Tharoor. That's I S H A A N T H A R O O R. And uh, yeah, I tweet a lot. So if you want to follow me, please do. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football World Cup Daily Podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss and Ishan Theroux, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And we'll see you tomorrow.
Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.